Question 58 of the Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 58 of the Mode of Angelic Knowledge. After the foregoing, we have now to treat of the mode of the angelic knowledge, concerning which there are seven points of inquiry. Whether the angel's intellect be sometimes in potentiality and sometimes in act, whether the angel can understand many things at the same time, whether the angel's knowledge is discursive, whether he understands by composing and dividing, whether there can be error in the angel's intellect, whether his knowledge can be styled as morning and evening, and whether the morning and evening knowledge are the same or do they differ. First article whether the angel's intellect is sometimes in potentiality, sometimes in act. Objection 1. It would seem that the angel's intellect is sometimes in potentiality and sometimes in act. For movement is the act of what is in potentiality, as stated in the physics. But the angel's minds are moved by understanding, as Dionysius says, Therefore the angelic minds are sometimes in potentiality. Objection to Further, since desire is of a thing not possessed, but possible to have, whoever desires to know anything is in potentiality thereto. But it is said, On whom the angels desire to look. Therefore the angel's intellect is sometimes in potentiality. Objection 3 Further, in the book De Causis, it is stated that an intelligence understands according to the mode of its substance. But the angel's substance has some admixture of potentiality, therefore it sometimes understands potentially. On the contrary, Augustine says, since the angels were created in the eternity of the word, they enjoy holy and devout contemplation. Now a contemplating intellect is not in potentiality, but in act. Therefore, the intellect of an angel is not in potentiality. I answer that, as the philosopher states, the intellect is in potentiality in two ways. First, as before learning or discovering, that is, before it has the habit of knowledge. Secondly, as when it possesses the habit of knowledge, but does not actually consider. In the first way, an angel's intellect is never in potentiality with regard to the things to which his natural knowledge extends. For as the higher namely the heavenly bodies, have no potentiality to existence which is not fully actuated, 
in the same way the heavenly intellects, the angels, have no intelligible potentiality which is not fully completed by connatural intelligible species. But with regard to things divinely revealed to them, there is nothing to hinder them from being in potentiality, because even the heavenly bodies are at times in potentiality to being enlightened by the sun. In the second way, an angel's intellect can be in potentiality with regard to things learnt by natural knowledge, for he is not always actually considering everything that he knows by natural knowledge. But as to the knowledge of the word and of the things he beholds in the word, he is never in this way in potentiality because he is always actually beholding the word and the things he sees in the word. For the bliss of the angels consists in such vision, and beatitude does not consist in habit, but in act, as the philosopher says. Reply to objection 1. Movement is taken there not as the act of something imperfect, that is, of something existing in potentiality, but as the act of something perfect, that is, of one actually existing. In this way, understanding and feeling are termed movements, as stated in De Anima. Reply to Objection 2. Such desire on the part of the angels does not exclude the object desired, but weariness thereof. Or they are said to desire the vision of God with regard to fresh revelations which they receive from God to fit them for the tasks which they have to perform. Reply to Objection 3. In the angel's substance there is no potentiality divested of act. In the same way the angel's intellect is never so in potentiality as to be without act. Second article, whether an angel can understand many things at the same time. Objection 1. It would seem that an angel cannot understand many things at the same time. For the philosopher says that it may happen that we know many things, but understand only one. Objection 2. Further, nothing is understood unless the intellect be informed by an intelligible species just as the body is formed by shape. But one body cannot be formed into many shapes. Therefore, neither can one intellect simultaneously understand various intelligible things. Objection 3. Further, to understand is a kind of movement. But no movement terminates in various terms. Therefore, many things cannot be understood altogether. On the contrary, Augustine says, the spiritual faculty of the angelic mind comprehends most easily at the same time all things that it wills. I answer that as unity of term is requisite for unity of movement, so is unity of object required for unity of operation. Now it happens that several things may be taken as several or as one, like the parts of a continuous whole. For if each of the parts be considered severally, they are many. Consequently, neither by sense nor by intellect are they grasped by one operation nor all at once. In another way, they are taken as forming one in the whole, 
and so they are grasped both by sense and intellect all at once and by one operation as long as the entire continuous whole is considered as is stated in de anima in this way our intellect understands together both the subject and the predicate as forming parts of one proposition and also two things compared together according as they agree in one point of comparison from this it is evident that many things in so far as they are distinct cannot be understood at once but in so far as they are comprised under one intelligible concept they can be understood together now everything is actually intelligible according as its image is in the intellect all things then which can be known by one intelligible species are known as one intelligible object and therefore are understood simultaneously but things known by various intelligible species are apprehended as different intelligible objects consequently by such knowledge as the angels have of things through the word they know all things under one intelligible species which is the divine essence therefore as regards such knowledge they know all things at once just as in heaven our thoughts will not be fleeting going and returning from one thing to another but we shall survey all our knowledge at the same time by one glance as augustine says but by that knowledge wherewith the angels know things by innate species they can at one time know all things which can be comprised under one species but not such as are under various species reply to objection one to understand many things as one is so to speak to understand one thing reply to objection two the intellect is informed by the intelligible species which it has within it so it can behold at the same time many intelligible objects under one species as one body can by one shape be likened to many bodies to the third objection the answer is the same as the first third article whether an angel's knowledge is discursive objection one it would seem that the knowledge of an angel is discursive for the discursive movement of the mind comes from one thing being known through another but the angels know one thing through another for they know creatures through the word therefore the intellect of an angel knows by discursive method objection to further whatever a lower power can do the higher power can do but the human intellect can syllogize and know causes in effects all of which is the discursive method therefore the intellect of the angel which is higher in the order of nature can with greater reason do this objection three further isidore says that demons learn more things by experience but experimental knowledge is discursive for one experience comes of many remembrances and one universal from many experiences as aristotle observes therefore an angel's knowledge is discursive on the contrary dionysius says that the angels do not acquire divine knowledge from separate discourses nor are they led to something particular from something common i answer that as has 
often been stated the angels hold that grade among spiritual substances which the heavenly bodies hold among corporeal substances for dionysius calls them heavenly minds now the difference between heavenly and earthly bodies is this that earthly bodies obtain their last perfection by chance and movement while the heavenly bodies have their last perfection at once from their very nature so likewise the lower namely the human intellects obtain their perfection in the knowledge of truth by a kind of movement and discursive intellectual operation that is to say as they advance from one known thing to another but if from the knowledge of a known principle they were straightway to perceive as known all its consequent conclusions then there would be no discursive process at all such is the condition of the angels because in the truths which they know naturally they at once behold all things whatsoever that can be known in them therefore they are called intellectual beings because even with ourselves the things which are instantly grasped by the mind are said to be understood hence intellect is defined as the habit of first principles but human souls which acquire knowledge of truth by the discursive method are called rational and this comes of the feebleness of their intellectual light for if they possess the fullness of intellectual light like the angels then in the first aspect of principles they would at once comprehend their whole range by perceiving whatever could be reasoned out from them reply to objection one discursion expresses movement of a kind now all movement is from something before to something after hence discursive knowledge comes about according as from something previously known one attains to the knowledge of what is afterwards known and which was previously unknown but if in the thing perceived something else be seen at the same time as an object and its image are seen simultaneously in a mirror it is not discursive knowledge and in this way the angels know things in the word reply to objection two the angels can syllogize in the sense of knowing a syllogism and they see effects in causes and causes in effects yet they do not acquire knowledge of an unknown truth in this way by syllogizing from causes to effect or from effect to cause reply to objection three experience is affirmed of angels and demons simply by way of similitude for as much as they know sensible things which are present yet without any discursion withal fourth article whether the angels understand by composing and dividing objection one it would seem that the angels understand by composing and dividing for where there is multiplicity of things understood there is composition of the same as is said in de anima but there is a multitude of things understood in the angelic mind because angels apprehend different things by various species and not all at one time therefore there is composition and division in the angel's mind objection to further negation is far more remote from affirmation than any two opposite natures are 
because the first of distinctions is that of affirmation and negation. But the angel knows certain distant natures not by one, but by diverse species, as is evident from what was said. Therefore he must know affirmation and negation by diverse species, and so it seems that he understands by composing and dividing. Objection 3. Further, speech is a sign of the intellect. But in speaking to men, angels use affirmative and negative expressions, which are signs of composition and of division in the intellect, as is manifest from many passages of sacred scripture. Therefore it seems that the angel understands by composing and dividing. On the contrary, Dionysius says that the intellectual power of the angel shines forth with the clear simplicity of divine concepts. But a simple intelligence is without composition and division. Therefore the angel understands without composition or division. I answer that as in the intellect when reasoning the conclusion is compared with the principle, so in the intellect composing and dividing the predicate is compared with the subject. For if our intellect were to see at once the truth of the conclusion in the principle, it would never understand by discursion and reasoning. In like manner, if the intellect in apprehending the quiddity of the subject were at once to have knowledge of all that can be attributed to or removed from the subject, it would never understand by composing and dividing, but only by understanding the essence. Thus it is evident that for the self-same reason our intellect understands by discursion and by composing and dividing, namely, that in the first apprehension of anything newly apprehended it does not at once grasp all that is virtually contained in it, and this comes from the weakness of the intellectual light within us, as has been said. Hence, since the intellectual light is perfect in the angel, for he is a pure and most clear mirror, as Dionysius says, it follows that as the angel does not understand by reasoning, so neither does he by composing and dividing. Nevertheless, he understands the composition and the division of enunciations, just as he apprehends the reasoning of syllogisms, for he understands simply such things as are composite, things movable immovably, and material things immaterially. Reply to objection 1. Not every multitude of things understood causes composition, but a multitude of such things understood that one of them is attributed to or denied of another. When an angel apprehends the nature of anything, he at the same time understands whatever can be either attributed to it or denied of it. Hence, in apprehending a nature, he by one simple perception grasps all that we can learn by composing and dividing. Reply to objection 2. The various natures of things differ less as to their mode of existing than to affirmation and negation, yet as to the way in which they are known. Affirmation and negation have something more in common, because directly the truth of an affirmation is known, the falsehood of the opposite negation is known also. Reply to Objection 3. The fact that angels use affirmative and negative forms of speech shows that they know both composition and division, yet 
not that they know by composing and dividing, but by knowing simply the nature of a thing. Fifth article, whether there can be falsehood in the intellect of an angel. Objection one, it would seem that there can be falsehood in the angel's intellect, for perversity appertains to falsehood. But as Dionysius says, there is a perverted fancy in the demons. Therefore it seems that there can be falsehood in the intellect of the angels. Objection two, further, nescience is the cause of estimating falsely. But as Dionysius says, there can be nescience in the angels. Therefore it seems there can be falsehood in them. Objection 3. Further, everything which falls short of the truth of wisdom and which has a depraved reason has falsehood or error in its intellect. But Dionysius affirms this of the demons. Therefore, it seems there can be error in the minds of the angels. On the contrary, the philosopher says that the intelligence is always true. Augustine likewise says that nothing but what is true can be the object of intelligence. Therefore, there can be neither deception nor falsehood in the angel's knowledge. I answer that the truth of this question depends partly upon what has gone before. For it has been said that an angel understands not by composing and dividing, but by understanding what a thing is. Now the intellect is always true as regards what a thing is, just as the sense regarding its proper object, as is said in De Anima. But by accident, deception and falsehood creep in when we understand the essence of a thing by some kind of composition, and this happens either when we take the definition of one thing for another, or when the parts of a definition do not hang together as if we were to accept as the definition of some creature a four-footed flying beast, for there is no such animal. And this comes about in things composite, the definition of which is drawn from diverse elements, one of which is as matter to the other. But there is no room for error in understanding simple quiddities, as is stated in the metaphysics, for either they are not grasped at all, and so we know nothing respecting them, or else they are known precisely as they exist. So therefore, no falsehood, error, or deception can exist of itself in the mind of any angel. Yet it does so happen accidentally, but very differently from the way it befalls us. For we sometimes get at the quiddity of a thing by a composing and dividing process, as when by division and demonstration we seek out the truth of a definition. Such is not the method of the angels, but through the knowledge of the essence of a thing they know everything that can be said regarding it. Now it is quite evident that the quiddity of a thing can be a source of knowledge with regard to everything belonging to such thing, or excluded from it, but not of what may be dependent on God's supernatural ordinance. Consequently, owing to their upright will, from their knowing the nature of every creature, the good angels form no judgments as to the nature of the qualities therein, save under the divine ordinance. Hence there can be no error or falsehood in them.
But since the minds of demons are utterly perverted from the divine wisdom, they at times form their opinions of things simply according to the natural conditions of the same, nor are they ever deceived as to the natural properties of anything, but they can be misled with regard to supernatural matters. For example, on seeing a dead man, they may suppose that he will not rise again, or on beholding Christ, they may judge him not to be God. From all this, the answers to the objections of both sides of the question are evident. For the perversity of the demons comes of their not being subject to the divine wisdom, while nescience is in the angels as regards things knowable, not naturally, but supernaturally. It is furthermore evident that their understanding of what a thing is, is always true, save accidentally, according as it is in an undue manner referred to some composition or division. Sixth article, whether there is a morning and an evening knowledge in the angels. Objection one, it would seem that there is neither an evening nor a morning knowledge in the angels, because evening and morning have an admixture of darkness. But there is no darkness in the knowledge of an angel, since there is no error nor falsehood. Therefore the angelic knowledge ought not to be termed morning and evening knowledge. Objection two, further, between evening and morning the night intervenes while noonday falls between morning and evening. Consequently, if there be a morning and an evening knowledge in the angels, for the same reason it appears that there ought to be a noonday and a night knowledge. Objection 3. Further, knowledge is diversified according to the difference of the objects known. Hence the philosopher says, the sciences are divided just as things are. But there is a threefold existence of things, to wit, in the word, in their own natures, and in the angelic knowledge, as Augustine observes. If therefore a morning and an evening knowledge be admitted in the angels, because of the existence of things in the word, and in their own nature, then there ought to be admitted a third class of knowledge on account of the existence of things in the angelic mind. On the contrary, Augustine divides the knowledge of the angels into morning and evening knowledge. I answer that the expression morning and evening knowledge was devised by Augustine, who interprets the six days wherein God made all things, not as ordinary days measured by the solar circuit, since the sun was only made on the fourth day, but as one day, namely the day of angelic knowledge, as directed to six classes of things. As in the ordinary day, morning is the beginning and evening the close of day, so their knowledge of the primordial being of things is called morning knowledge, and this is according as things exist in the word. But their knowledge of the very being of the thing created, as it stands in its own nature, is termed evening knowledge, because the being of things flows from the word, as from a kind of primordial principle. And this flow is terminated in the being which they have in themselves. Reply to Objection 1. 
evening and morning knowledge and the angelic knowledge are not taken as compared to an admixture of darkness but as compared to beginning and end or else it can be said as augustine puts it that there is nothing to prevent us from calling something light in comparison with one thing and darkness with respect to another in the same way the life of the faithful and the just is called light in comparison with the wicked according to ephesians you were heretofore darkness but now light in the lord yet this very life of the faithful when set in contrast to the life of glory is termed darkness according to the second letter of peter you have the firm prophetic word whereunto you do well to attend as to a light that shineth in a dark place so the angel's knowledge by which he knows things in their own nature is day in comparison with ignorance or error yet it is dark in comparison with the vision of the word reply to objection to the morning and evening knowledge belong to the day that is to the enlightened angels who are quite apart from the darkness that is from the evil spirits the good angels while knowing the creature do not adhere to it for that would be to turn to darkness and to night but they refer this back to the praise of god in whom as in their principle they know all things consequently after evening there is no night but morning so that morning is the end of the preceding day and the beginning of the following in so far as the angels refer to god's praise their knowledge of the preceding work noonday is comprised under the name of day as the middle between the two extremes or else the noon can be referred to their knowledge of god himself who has neither beginning nor end reply to objection three the angels themselves are also creatures accordingly the existence of things in the angelic knowledge is comprised under evening knowledge as also the existence of things in their own nature seventh article whether the morning and evening knowledge are one objection one it would seem that the morning and the evening knowledge are one for it is said there was evening and morning one day but by the expression day the knowledge of the angels is to be understood as augustine says therefore the morning and evening knowledge of the angels are one and the same objection to further it is impossible for one faculty to have two operations at the same time but the angels are always using their morning knowledge because they are always beholding god and all things in god according to matthew therefore if the evening knowledge were different from the morning the angel could never exercise his evening knowledge objection three further the apostle says when that which is perfect is come that which is in part shall be done away but if the evening knowledge be different from the morning it is compared to it as the less perfect to the perfect therefore the evening knowledge cannot exist together with the morning knowledge on the contrary augustine says there is a vast difference between knowing anything as it is in the word of god and as it is in its own nature so that the former belongs to the day and the latter to the evening i answer that as was observed the evening knowledge is that by which the angels know things in their proper nature
this cannot be understood as if they drew their knowledge from the proper nature of things so that the preposition in denotes the form of a principle because as has been already stated the angels do not draw their knowledge from things it follows then that when we say in their proper nature we refer to the aspect of the thing known in so far as it is an object of knowledge that is to say that the evening knowledge is in the angels in so far as they know the being of things which those things have in their own nature now they know this through a twofold medium namely by innate ideas or by the forms of things existing in the word for by beholding the word they know not merely the being of things as existing in the word but the being as possessed by the things themselves as god by contemplating himself sees that being which things have in their own nature if therefore it be called evening knowledge in so far as when the angels behold the word they know the being which things have in their proper nature then the morning and the evening knowledge are essentially one and the same and only differ as to the things known if it be called evening knowledge in so far as through innate ideas they know the being which things have in their own nature then the morning and the evening knowledge differ thus augustine seems to understand it when he assigns one as inferior to the other reply to objection one the six days as augustine understands them are taken as the six classes of things known by the angels so that the day's unit is taken according to the unit of the thing understood which nevertheless can be apprehended by various ways of knowing it reply to objection two there can be two operations of the same faculty at one time one of which is referred to the other as is evident when the will at the same time wills the end and the means to the end and the intellect at the same instant perceives principles and conclusions through those principles when it has already acquired knowledge as augustine says the evening knowledge is referred to the morning knowledge in the angels hence there is nothing to hinder both from being at the same time in the angels reply to objection three on the coming of what is perfect the opposite imperfect is done away just as faith which is of the things that are not seen is made void when vision succeeds but the imperfection of the evening knowledge is not opposed to the perfection of the morning knowledge for that a thing be known in itself is not opposite to its being known in its cause nor again is there any inconsistency in knowing a thing through two mediums one of which is more perfect and the other less perfect just as we can have a demonstrative and probable medium for reaching the same conclusion in like manner a thing can be known by the angel through the uncreated word and through an innate idea end of question 58 question 59 of summa theologica pars prima on the angels and on the six days this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org 
Recording by Simon Wainwright Summa Theologica Pars Prima On the Angels and on the Six Days By St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 59 The Will of the Angels Four Articles Question 59. The Will of the Angels. Four Articles. In the next place we must treat of things concerning the will of the angels. In the first place we shall treat of the will itself. Secondly, of its movement, which is love. Under the first heading there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether there is will in the angels. 2 whether the will of the angel is his nature or his intellect. 3. Is there free will in the angels? 4. Is there an irascible and a concupiscible appetite in them? First article. Whether there is will in the angels. Objection 1. It would seem that there is no will in the angels, for, as the philosopher says, D. Anama 3, text 42, the will is in the reason, but there is no reason in the angels, but something higher than reason. Therefore, there is no will in the angels, but something higher than the will. Objection 2. Further, the will is comprised under the appetite, as is evident from the philosopher. D. Anama 3, text 42. But the appetite argues something imperfect, because it is a desire of something not as yet possessed. Therefore, since there is no imperfection in the angels, especially in the blessed ones, it seems that there is no will in them. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says, D. Anama 2, text 54, that the will is a mover, which is moved, for it is moved by the appetible object understood. Now, the angels are immovable, since they are incorporeal. Therefore, there is no will in the angels. On the contrary, Augustine says, D. Trin, 10, 11, 12, that the image of the Trinity is found in the soul according to the memory, understanding, and will. But God's image is found not only in the soul of man, but also in the angelic mind since it also is capable of knowing God. Therefore, there is will in the angels. I answer that we must necessarily place a will in the angels. In evidence thereof, it must be borne in mind that since all things flow from the divine will, all things in their own way are inclined by appetite towards good, but in different ways. 
Some are inclined to good by their natural inclination, without knowledge, as plants and inanimate bodies. Such inclination towards good is called a natural appetite. Others, again, are inclined towards good, but with some knowledge. Not that they know the aspect of goodness, but that they apprehend some particular good, as in the sense which knows the sweet, the white, and so on. The inclination which follows this apprehension is called a sensitive appetite. Other things, again, have an inclination towards good, but with a knowledge whereby they perceive the aspect of goodness. This belongs to the intellect. This is most perfectly inclined towards what is good, not indeed as if it were merely guided by another towards some particular good only, like things devoid of knowledge, nor towards some particular good only as things which have only sensitive knowledge, but as inclined towards good in general. Such an inclination is termed will. Accordingly, since the angels by their intellect know the universal aspect of goodness, it is manifest that there is a will in them. Reply. Objection 1. Reason surpasses sense in a different way from that in which intellect surpasses reason. Reason surpasses sense according to the diversity of the objects known, for sense judges of particular objects, while reason judges of universals. Therefore, there must be one appetite tending towards good in the abstract, which appetite belongs to reason, and another with a tendency towards particular good, which appetite belongs to sense. But intellect and reason differ as to their manner of knowing, because the intellect knows by simple intuition, while reason knows by a process of discursion from one thing to another. Nevertheless, by such discursion, reason comes to know what intellect learns without it, namely, the universal. Consequently, the object presented to the appetitive faculty on the part of reason and on the part of intellect is the same. Therefore, in the angels who are purely intellectual, there is no appetite higher than the will. Reply. Objection 2. Although the name of the appetitive part is derived from seeking things not yet possessed, yet the appetitive part reaches out not to these things only, but also to many other things. Thus the name of a stone, lapis, is derived from injuring the foot, laison pedis, though not this alone belongs to a stone. In the same way, the irascible faculty is so denominated from anger, ira, though at the same time there are several other 
passions in it as hope daring and rest reply objection three the will is called a mover which is moved according as to will and to understand are termed movements of a kind and there is nothing to prevent movement of this kind from existing in the angels since such movement is the act of a perfect agent as stated in de anima three text twenty eight second article whether in the angels the will differs from the intellect objection one it would seem that in the angel the will does not differ from the intellect and from the nature for an angel is more simple than a natural body but a natural body is inclined through its form towards its end which is its good therefore much more so is the angel now the angel's form is either the nature in which he subsists or else it is some species within his intellect therefore the angel inclines towards the good through his own nature or through an intelligible species but such inclination towards the good belongs to the will therefore the will of the angel does not differ from his nature or his intellect objection to further the object of the intellect is the true while the object of the will is the good now the good and the true differ not really but only logically therefore will and intellect are not really different objection three further the distinction of common and proper does not differentiate the faculties for the same power of sight perceives color and whiteness but the good and the true seem to be mutually related as common to particular for the true is a particular good to wit of the intellect therefore the will whose object is the good does not differ from the intellect whose object is the true on the contrary the will in the angels regards good things only while their intellect regards both good and bad things for they know both therefore the will of the angels is distinct from their intellect i answer that in the angels the will is a special faculty or power which is neither their nature nor their intellect that it is not their nature is manifest from this that the nature or essence of a thing is completely comprised within it whatever then extends to anything beyond it is not its essence hence we see in natural bodies that the inclination to being does not come from anything superadded to the essence but from the matter which desires being before possessing it and from the form which keeps it in such being when once it exists but the inclination towards something extrinsic comes from something superadded to the essence as tendency 
to a place comes from gravity or lightness, while the inclination to make something like itself comes from the active qualities. Now, the will has a natural tendency towards good. Consequently, there alone are essence and will identified where all good is contained within the essence of him who wills, that is to say, in God, who wills nothing beyond himself except on account of his goodness. This cannot be said of any creature, because infinite goodness is quite foreign to the nature of any created thing. Accordingly, neither the will of the angel nor that of any creature can be the same thing as its essence. In like manner, neither can the will be the same thing as the intellect of angel or man, because knowledge comes about in so far as the object known is within the knower. Consequently, the intellect extends itself to what is outside it, according as what is its essence is outside it is disposed to be somehow within it. On the other hand, the will goes out to what is beyond it, according as by a kind of inclination it tends in a manner to what is outside it. Now, it belongs to one faculty to have within itself something which is outside it, and to another faculty to tend to what is outside it. Consequently, intellect and will must necessarily be different powers in every creature. It is not so with God, for he has within himself universal being and the universal good. Therefore, both intellect and will are his nature. Reply. Objection 1. A natural body is moved to its own being by its substantial form, while it is inclined to something outside by something additional, as has been said. Reply Objection 2. Faculties are not differentiated by any material difference of their objects, but according to their formal distinction, which is taken from the nature of the object as such. Consequently, the diversity derived from the notion of good and true suffices for the difference of intellect from will. Reply, Objection 3. Because the good and the true are really convertible, it follows that the good is apprehended by the intellect as something true while the true is desired by the will as something good. Nevertheless, the diversity of their aspects is sufficient for diversifying the faculties, as was said above. Add to third article, whether there is free will in the angels. Objection 1. It would seem that there is no free will in the angels, for the act of free will is to choose, but there can be no choice with the angels because choice is the desire of something after taking counsel, 
while counsel is a kind of inquiry as stated in ethic three three but the angel's knowledge is not the result of inquiring for this belongs to the discursiveness of reason therefore it appears that there is no free will in the angels objection to further free will implies indifference to alternatives but in the angels on the part of their intellect there is no such indifference because as we observed already question fifty eight article five their intellect is not deceived as to things which are naturally intelligible to them therefore neither on the part of their appetitive faculty can there be free will objection three further the natural endowments of the angels belong to them according to degrees of more or less because in the higher angels the intellectual nature is more perfect than in the lower but the free will does not admit of degrees therefore there is no free will in them on the contrary free will is part of man's dignity but the angel's dignity surpasses that of men therefore since free will is in men with much more reason is it in the angels i answer that some things that are which act not from any previous judgment but as it were moved and made to act by others just as the arrow is directed to the target by the archer others act from some kind of judgment but not from free will such as irrational animals for the sheep flies from the wolf by a kind of judgment whereby it esteems it to be hurtful to itself such a judgment is not a free one but implanted by nature only an agent endowed with an intellect can act with a judgment which is free in so far as it apprehends the common note of goodness from which it can judge this or the other thing to be good consequently wherever there is intellect there is free will it is therefore manifest that just as there is intellect so is there free will in the angels and in a higher degree of perfection than in man reply objection one the philosopher is speaking of choice as it is in man as a man's estimate in speculative matters differs from an angel's in this that the one needs not to inquire while the other does so need so is it in practical matters hence there is choice in the angels yet not with the inquisitive deliberation of counsel but by the sudden acceptance of truth reply objection to as was observed already article two knowledge is effected by the presence of the known within the knower now it is a mark of imperfection in anything 
not to have within it what it should naturally have consequently an angel would not be perfect in his nature if his intellect were not determined to every truth which he can know naturally but the act of the appetitive faculty comes of this that the affection is directed to something outside yet the perfection of a thing does not come from everything to which it is inclined but only from something which is higher than it therefore it does not argue imperfection in an angel if his will be not determined with regard to things beneath him but it would argue imperfection in him were he to be indeterminate to what is above him reply objection three free will exists in a nobler manner in the higher angels than it does in the lower as also does the judgment of the intellect yet it is true that liberty in so far as the removal of compulsion is considered is not susceptible of greater and less degree because privations and negations are not lessened nor increased directly of themselves but only by their cause or through the addition of some qualification article four whether there is an irascible and a concupiscible appetite in the angels objection one it would seem that there is an irascible and concupiscible appetite in the angels for dionysus says divine names for that in the demons there is unreasonable fury and wild concupiscence but demons are of the same nature as angels for sin has not altered their nature Therefore, there is an irascible and a concupiscible appetite in the angels. Objection 2. Further, love and joy are in the concupiscible, while anger, hope, and fear are in the irascible appetite. But in the sacred scriptures, these things are attributed both to the good and to the wicked angels. Therefore, there is an irascible and a concupiscible appetite in the angels objection three further some virtues are said to reside in the irascible appetite and some in the concupiscible thus charity and temperance appear to be in the concupiscible while hope and fortitude are in the irascible but these virtues are in the angels Therefore, there is both a concupiscible and an irascible appetite in the angels. On the contrary, the philosopher says, D. Anima 3, text 42, that the irascible and the concupiscible are in the sensitive part, which does not exist in angels. Consequently, there is no irascible or concupiscible appetite in the angels i answer that the intellective 
appetite is not divided into irascible and concupiscible only the sensitive appetite is so divided the reason of this is because since the faculties are distinguished from one another not according to the material but only by the formal distinction of objects if to any faculty there respond an object according to some common idea there will be no distinction of faculties according to the diversity of the particular things contained under the common idea just as if the proper object of the power of sight be color as such then there are not several powers of sight distinguished according to the difference of black and white whereas if the proper object of any faculty were white as white then the faculty of seeing white would be distinguished from the faculty of seeing black now it is quite evident from what has been said that the object of the intellective appetite otherwise known as the will is good according to the common aspect of goodness nor can there be any appetite except of what is good hence in the intellective part the appetite is not divided according to the distinction of some particular good things as the sensitive appetite is divided which does not crave for what is good according to its common aspect but for some particular good object accordingly since there exists in the angels only an intellective appetite their appetite is not distinguished into irascible and concupiscible but remains undivided and it is called the will reply objection one theory and concupiscence are metaphorically said to be in the demons as anger is sometimes attributed to god on account of the resemblance in the effect reply objection to love and joy in so far as they are passions are in the concupiscible appetite but in so far as they express a simple act of the will they are in the intellective part in this sense to love is to wish well to any one and to be glad is for the will to repose in some good possessed universally speaking none of these things is said of the angels as by way of passions as augustine says de sive day nine reply objection three charity as a virtue is not in the concupiscible appetite but in the will because the object of the concupiscible appetite is the good as delectable to the senses but the divine goodness which is the object of charity is not of any such kind for the same reason it must be said that hope does not exist in the irascible appetite because the object of the irascible appetite is something arduous belonging to the sensible order which the virtue of hope does not regard 
since the object of hope is arduous and divine temperance however considered as a human virtue deals with the desires of sensible pleasures which belong to the concupiscible faculty similarly fortitude regulates daring and fear which resides in the irascible part consequently temperance in so far as it is a human virtue resides in the concupiscible part and fortitude in the irascible but they do not exist in the angels in this manner for in them there are no passions of concupiscence nor of fear and daring to be regulated by temperance and fortitude but temperance is predicated of them according as in moderation they display their will in conformity with the divine will fortitude is likewise attributed to them in so far as they firmly carry out the divine will all of this is done by their will and not by the irascible or concupiscible appetite End of question fifty nine recording by simon wainwright question sixty of summa theologica pars prima on the angels and on the six days this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. summa theologica pars prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 60 Of the Love or Dilection of the Angels The next subject for our consideration is that act of the will which is love or dilection, because every act of the appetitive faculty comes of love. Under this heading there are five points of inquiry. 1. Whether there is natural love in the angels. 2 whether there is in them love of choice. 3. Whether the angel loves himself with natural love or with love of choice. 4. Whether one angel loves another with natural love as he loves himself. 5. Whether the angel loves God more than self with natural love. First article. Pars Prima, Question 60, Article 1. Whether there is natural love or dilection in an angel. Objection 1. It would seem that there is no natural love or dilection in the angels, for natural love is contradistinguished from intellectual love, as stated by Dionysus, divine names, 4. But an angel's love is intellectual, therefore it is not natural. Objection 2. Further, those who love with natural love are more acted upon than active in themselves, for nothing has control over its own nature. Now the angels are not acted upon, but act of themselves, because they possess free will, as was shown above. Question 59, Article 3. Consequently, there is no natural love in them. Objection 3. Further, every love is either ordinate or inordinate. Now ordinate love belongs to charity, while inordinate love belongs to wickedness. But neither of these things belong to nature, because charity is above nature, while wickedness is against nature. Therefore, there is no natural love in the angels. On the contrary, Love results from knowledge, for nothing is loved except it be first known, as Augustine says, on the Trinity. 10, 1 and 2. But there is natural knowledge in the angels, therefore there is also natural love. I answer that, 
we must necessarily place natural love in the angels. In evidence of this we must bear in mind that what comes first is always sustained in what comes after it. Now nature comes before intellect, because the nature of every subject is its essence. Consequently, whatever belongs to nature must be preserved likewise in such subjects as have intellect. But it is common to every nature to have some inclination, and this is its natural appetite or love. This inclination is found to exist differently in different natures, but in each according to its mode. Consequently, in the intellectual nature there is to be found a natural inclination coming from the will, in the sensitive nature according to the sensitive appetite, but in a nature devoid of knowledge only according to the tendency of the nature to something. Therefore, since an angel is an intellectual nature, there must be natural love in its will. Reply to Objection 1. Intellectual love is contradistinguished from that natural love, which is merely natural, in so far as it belongs to a nature which has not likewise the perfection of either sense or intellect. Reply to Objection 2. All things in the world are moved to act by something else except the first agent, who acts in such a manner that he is in no way moved to act by another, and in whom nature and will are the same. So there is nothing unfitting in an angel being moved to act in so far as such natural inclination is implanted in him by the author of his nature. Yet he is not so moved to act that he does not act himself, because he has free will. Reply to Objection 3. As natural knowledge is always true, so is natural love well regulated, because natural love is something else than the inclination implanted in nature by its author. To say that a natural inclination is not well regulated is to derogate from the author of nature. Yet the rectitude of natural love is different from the rectitude of charity and virtue, because the one rectitude perfects the other, even so the truth of natural knowledge is of one kind, and the truth of infused or acquired knowledge is of another. Second article, Pars Prima, Question 60, Article 2. Whether there is love of choice in the angels? Objection 1. It would seem that there is no love of choice in the angels, for love of choice appears to be rational love, since choice follows counsel, which lies in inquiry, as stated in Ethics 3. 3. Now rational love is contrasted with intellectual, which is proper to angels, as is said, divine names, 4. Therefore, there is no love of choice in the angels. Objection 2. Further, the angels have only natural knowledge besides such as is infused, since they do not proceed from principles to acquire the knowledge of conclusions. Hence they are disposed to everything they can know, as our intellect is disposed towards first principles, which it can know naturally. Now love follows knowledge, as has already been stated. Article 1, question 16, Article 1. Consequently, because they are infused love, there is only natural love in the angels. Therefore there is no love of choice in them. On the contrary, we neither merit nor demerit by our natural acts but by the love the angels merit or demerit. Therefore there is love of choice in them. I answer that. There exists in the angels a natural love, and a love of choice. Their natural love is the principle of their love of choice, because what belongs to that which proceeds has always the nature of a principle. Wherefore, since nature is first in everything, what belongs to nature must be a principle in everything. This is clearly evident in man, with respect to both his intellect and his will. For the intellect knows principles naturally, and from such knowledge in man comes the knowledge of conclusions, which are known by him not naturally, 
but by discovery or by teaching. In like manner, the end acts in the will in the same way as the principle does in the intellect, as is laid down in Physics 2, text 89. Consequently, the will tends naturally to its last end, for every man naturally wills happiness, and all other desires are caused by this natural desire, since whatever a man wills, he wills on account of the end. Therefore the love of that good, which a man naturally wills as an end, is his natural love. But the love which comes of this, which is of something loved for the end's sake, is the love of choice. There is, however, a difference on the part of the intellect and on the part of the will, because, as was stated already, question 59, article 2, the mind's knowledge is brought about by the inward presence of the known within the knower. It comes of the imperfection of man's intellectual nature that his mind does not simultaneously possess all things capable of being understood, but only a few things from which he is moved in a measure to grasp other things. The act of the appetitive faculty, on the contrary, follows the inclination of man towards things, some of which are good in themselves, and consequently are appetible in themselves, others being good only in relation to something else, and being appetible on account of something else. Consequently, it does not argue imperfection in the person desiring, for him to seek one thing naturally as his end, and something else from choice as ordained to such end. Therefore, since the intellectual nature of the angels is perfect, only natural and not deductive knowledge is to be found in them, but there is to be found in them both natural love and love of choice. In saying all this, we are passing over all that regards things which are above nature, since nature is not the sufficient principle thereof, but we shall speak of them later on. Question 62. Reply to Objection 1. Not all love of choice is rational love, according as rational is distinguished from intellectual love. For rational love is so called which follows deductive knowledge, but as was said above, question 59, article 3 and 1, when treating of free will, every choice does not follow a discursive act of the reason, but only human choice. Consequently, the conclusion does not follow. The reply to the second objection follows from what has been said. Third article. Pars Prima, Question 60, Article 3. Whether the angel loves himself with both natural love and love of choice. Objection 1. It would seem that the angel does not love himself both with natural love and a love of choice. For as we said in Article 2, natural love regards the end itself, while love of choice regards the means to the end. But the same thing with regard to the same cannot be both the end and a means to the end. Therefore, natural love and the love of choice cannot have the same object. Objection 2. Further, as Dionysus observes, divine names 4, love is a uniting and a binding power. But uniting and binding imply various things brought together. Therefore, the angel cannot love himself. Objection 3. Further, love is a kind of movement, but every movement tends towards something else. Therefore it seems that an angel cannot love himself, and either natural or elective love. On the contrary, the philosopher says, Ethics 9, 8, Love for others comes of love for oneself. I answer that, since the object of love is good, and good is to be found both in substance and in accident, as in clear from Ethics 1, 6, a thing may be loved in two ways, first of all as a subsisting good, and secondly as an accidental or inherent good.
that is loved as a subsisting good, which is so loved that we wish well to it. But that which we wish unto another is loved as an accidental or inherent good, thus knowledge is loved, not that any good may come of it, but that it may be possessed. This kind of love has been called by the name concupiscence, while the first is called friendship. Now it manifests that in things devoid of knowledge, everything naturally seeks to procure what is good for itself, as fire seeks to mount upwards. Consequently, both angel and man naturally seek their own good and perfection. This is to love self. Hence angel and man naturally love self, in so far as by natural appetite each desires what is good for self. On the other hand, each loves self with the love of choice, in so far as from choice he wishes for something which will benefit himself. Reply to Objection 1. It is not under the same, but under quite different aspects that an angel or a man loves self with natural and with elective love, as was observed above. Reply to Objection 2. As to be one is better than to be united. So there is more oneness in love which is directed to self than in love which unites one to others. Dionysus uses the terms uniting and binding in order to show the derivation of love from self to things outside self, as uniting is derived from unity. Reply to Objection 3. As love is an action which remains within the agent, so also is it a movement which abides within the lover, but does not of necessity tend towards something else, yet it can be reflected back upon the lover so that he loves himself, just as knowledge is reflected back upon the knower in such a way that he knows himself. Fourth article. Pars Prima, question 60, article 4. Whether an angel loves another with natural love as he loves himself? Objection 1. It would seem that an angel does not love another with natural love as he loves himself, for love follows knowledge. But an angel does not know another as he knows himself, because he knows himself by his essence, while he knows another by its similitude, as was said above. Question 56, Articles 1 and 2. Therefore it seems that one angel does not love another with natural love as he loves himself. Objection 2. Further, the cause is more powerful than the effect, and the principle than what is derived from it. But love for another comes of love for self, as the philosopher says, Ethic 9.8. Therefore, one angel does not love another as himself, but loves himself more. Objection 3. Further, natural love is of something as an end, and is unremovable. But no angel is the end of another, and again, such love can be severed from him as is the case with the demons, who have no love for the good angels. Therefore an angel does not love another with natural love as he loves himself. On the contrary, that seems to be a natural property which is found in all, even in such as devoid of reason. But every beast loves its like, as is said, Sirah 13.19. Therefore an angel naturally loves another as he loves himself. I answer that, as was observed in Article 3, both angel and man naturally love self. Now what is one with a thing is that thing itself. Consequently, every thing loves what is one with itself. So if this be one with it by natural union, it loves it with natural love. But if it be one with it by non-natural union, then it loves it with non-natural love. Thus a man f loves his fellow townsmen with a social love, 
while he loves a blood relation with natural affection, in so far as he is one with him in the principle of natural generation. Now it is evident that what is generally or specifically one with another is the one according to nature, and so everything loves another which is one with it in species, with a natural affection, in so far as it loves its own species. This is manifest even in things devoid of knowledge, for fire has a natural inclination to communicate its form to another thing, wherein consists this other thing's good, it is naturally inclined to seek its own good, namely to be born upwards. So then, it must be said that one angel loves another with natural affection, in so far as he is one with him in nature. But so far as an angel has something else in common with another angel, or differs from him in other respects, he does not love him with natural love. Reply to Objection 1. The expression as himself can in one way qualify the knowledge and the love on the part of the one known and loved, and thus one angel knows another as himself, because he knows the other to be even as he knows himself to be. In another way the expression can qualify the knowledge and the love on the part of the knower and lover, and thus one angel does not know another as himself, because he knows himself by his essence, and the other not by the other's essence. In like manner he does not love another as he loves himself, because he loves himself by his own will, but he does not love another by the other's will. Reply to Objection 2. The expression as does not denote equality, but likeness. For since natural affection rests upon natural unity, the angel naturally loves less what is less one with him. Consequently, he loves more what is numerically one with himself than what is one only generically or specifically. But it is natural for him to have a like love for another as for himself. In this respect, that as he loves self in wishing well to self, so he loves another in wishing well to him. Reply to Objection 3. Natural love is said to be the end, not as of that end to which good is willed, but rather as of the good which one wills for oneself, and in consequence for another as united to oneself. Nor can such natural love be stripped from the wicked angels, without their still retaining a natural affection towards the good angels, in so far as they share the same nature with them. But they hate them, in so far as they are unlike them, according to righteousness and unrighteousness. Fifth article, Pars Prima, Question 60, Article 5. Whether an angel by natural love loves God more than he loves himself? Objection 1. It would seem that an angel does not love God by natural love more than he loves himself, for as was stated in Article 4, natural love rests upon natural union. Now the divine nature is far above the angelic nature. Therefore, according to natural love, the angel loves God less than self, or even than another angel. Objection 2. Further, that on account of which a thing is such, it is yet more so. But every one loves another with natural love for his own sake, because one thing loves another as good for itself. Therefore the angel does not love God more than self with natural love. Objection 3. Further, nature is self-centered in its operation, for we behold every agent acting naturally for its own preservation. But nature's operation would not be self-centered were it to tend towards anything else more than to nature itself. 
Therefore, the angel does not love God more than himself from natural love. Objection 4. Further, it is proper to charity to love God more than self. But to love from charity is not natural to the angels, for it is poured out upon their hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to them, as Augustine says. The City of God, 12, 9. Therefore the angels do not love God more than themselves by natural love. Objection 5. Further, natural love lasts while nature endures. By the love of God more than self does not remain in the angel or man who sins, for Augustine says, the city of God, 14. Two loves have made two cities, namely love of self unto the contempt of God has made the earthly clay, while love of God unto the contempt of self has made the heavenly city. Therefore it is not natural to love God more than self. On the contrary, all the moral precepts of law come to the law of nature, but the precept of loving God more than self is a moral precept of the law. Therefore, it is of the law of nature. Consequently, from natural love, the angel loves God more than himself. I answer that. There have been some who maintained that an angel loves God more than himself with natural love, both as to the love of concupiscence, through his seeking the divine good for himself rather than his own good, and, in a fashion, as it's to the love of friendship, in so far as he naturally desires a greater good to God than to himself, because he naturally wishes God to be God, while as for himself, he wills to have his own nature. But absolutely speaking, out of the natural love he loves himself more than he does God, because he naturally loves himself before God and with greater intensity. The falsity of such an opinion stands in evidence, if one but consider with the natural movement tends in the natural order of things, because the natural tendency of things, devoid of reason, shows the nature of the natural inclination residing in the will of an intellectual nature. Now in natural things, everything which, as such, naturally belongs to another, is principally and more strongly inclined to that other to which it belongs, than towards itself. Such a natural tendency is evidence from things which are moved according to nature, because, according as a thing is moved naturally, it has an inbound aptitude to be thus moved, as stated in Physics 2, text 78. For we observe that the part naturally exposes itself in order to safeguard the whole, as, for instance, the hand is without deliberation exposed to the blow for the whole body's safety. And since reason copies nature, we find the same inclination among the social virtues, for it behooves the virtuous citizen to expose himself to the danger of death for the public weal of the state. And if man were a natural part of the city, then such inclination would be natural to him. Consequently, since God is the universal good, and under this good both man and angel and all creatures are compromised, because every angel in regard to its entire being naturally belongs to God, it follows that from natural love angel and man alike love God before themselves and with a greater love. Otherwise, if either of them loved self more than God, it would follow that natural love would be perverse, and that it would not be perfected but destroyed by charity. Reply to Objection 1 Such reasoning holds good of things adequately divided whereof one is not the cause of the existence and goodness of the other, for in such natures love loves itself naturally more than it does the other, inasmuch as it is more one with itself than it is with the other, 
but where one is the whole cause of the existence and goodness of the other, that one is naturally more loved than the self, because, as we said above, each part naturally loves the whole more than itself, and each individual naturally loves the good of the species more than its own individual good. Now God is not only the good of one species, but is absolutely the universal good. Hence everything in, his, in its own way naturally loves God more than itself. Reply to Objection 2 when it is said that God is loved by an angel in so far as he is good to the angel, if the expression in so far denotes an end, then it is false. For he does not naturally love God for his own good, but for God's sake. If it denotes the nature of love on the lover's part, then it is true. For it would not be the nature of any one to love God, except from this, that everything is dependent on that good which is God. Reply to Objection 3. Nature's operation is self-centred, not merely as to the certain particular details, but much more as to what is common, for everything is inclined to preserve not merely its individuality, but likewise its species. And much more has everything a natural inclination towards what is the absolutely universal good. Reply to Objection 4. God, insofar as he is the universal good, from whom every natural good depends, is loved by everything with natural love. So far as he is the good which of its very nature beatifies all with supernatural beatification, he is love with the love of charity. Reply to Objection 5. Since God's substance and universal goodness are one and the same, all who behold God's essence are by the same movement of love moved towards the divine essence as it is distinct from other things, and according as it is the universal good. And because he is naturally loved by all so far as he is the universal good, it is impossible that whoever sees him in his essence should not love him, but such as do not behold his essence know him by some particular effects, which are sometimes opposed to their will. So in this way they are said to hate God, yet nevertheless, so far as he is the universal good of all, everything naturally loves God more than itself. End of question 60. Question 61 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. Summa Theologica Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 61. Of the production of the angels in the order of natural being, in four articles. After dealing with the nature of the angels, their knowledge and will, it now remains for us to treat of their creation, or, speaking in a general way, of their origin. Such consideration is threefold. In the first place, we must see how they were brought into natural existence, secondly, how they were made perfect in grace or glory, and thirdly, how some of them became wicked. Under the first heading there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether the angel has a cause of his existence? 2. Whether he has existed from eternity? 3. Whether he was created before corporeal creatures? 4. Whether the angels were created in the Empyrean heaven? First Article 1. Question 1. Article 1. Whether the angels have a cause of their existence? Objection 1. It would seem that the angels have no cause of their existence. 
For the first chapter of Genesis treats of things created by God, but there is no mention of angels. Therefore, the angels were not created by God. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says, Metaphysics 8, text 16, that if any substance be a form without matter, straightway it has being and unity of itself, and has no cause of its being and unity. But the angels are immaterial forms, as was shown above. Question 50, article 2. Therefore, they have no cause of their being. Objection 3. Further, whatever is produced by any agent, from the very fact of its being produced, receives form from it. But since the angels are forms, they do not derive their form from any agent. Therefore, the angels have no active cause. On the contrary, it is said, Psalm 148, 2, Praise ye him, all his angels. And further on, verse 5, For he spoke, and they were made. I answer that, it must be affirmed that angels, and everything existing except God, were made by God. God alone is his own existence, while in everything else the essence differs from the existence, as was shown above, question 3, article 4. From this, it is clear that God alone exists of his own essence, while all other beings have their existence by participation. Now whatever exists by participation is caused by what exists essentially, as everything ignited is caused by fire. Consequently, the angels of necessity were made by God. Reply Objection 1 Augustine says, the City of God, 1150, that the angels were not passed over in that account of the first creation of things, but are designated by the name heavens, or of light, and they were either passed over or else designated by the names of corporeal things, because Moses was addressing an uncultured people, as yet incapable of understanding an incorporeal nature, and if it had been divulged that there were creatures existing beyond corporeal nature, it would have proved to them an occasion of idolatry, to which they were inclined, and from which Moses especially meant to safeguard them. Reply Objection 2 Substances that are subsisting forms have no formal cause of their existence in unity, nor such active cause as produces its effects by changing the matter from a state of potentiality to actuality, but they have a cause productive of their entire substance. From this, the solution of the third difficulty is manifest. Second Article 1. Question 61. Article 2. Whether the angel was produced by God from eternity? Objection 1. It would seem that the angel was produced by God from eternity. For God is the cause of the angel by his being. For he does not act through something besides his essence, but his being is eternal. Therefore, he produced the angels from eternity. Objection 2. Further, everything which exists at one period and not at another is subject to time. But the angel is above time, as is laid down in the book De Causis. Therefore, the angel is not at one time existing, and at another non-existing, but exists always. Objection 3. Further, Augustine, on the Trinity, 13, proves the soul's incorruptibility by the fact that the mind is capable of truth. But as truth is incorruptible, so is it eternal. Therefore, the intellectual nature of the soul and of the angel is not only incorruptible, but likewise eternal. On the contrary, it is said, Proverbs 8.22, In the person of begotten wisdom, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways, before he made anything from the beginning. 
but as was shown above, Article 1, the angels were made by God. Therefore, at one time, the angels were not. I answer that God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, is from eternity. Catholic faith holds this without doubt, and everything to the contrary must be rejected as heretical. For God so produced creatures that he made them from nothing, that is, after they had not been. Reply Objection 1. God's being is his will. So the fact that God produced the angels and other creatures by his being does not exclude that he made them also by his will. But, as was shown above, question 19, article 3, question 46, article 1, God's will does not act by necessity in producing creatures. Therefore, he produced such as he willed and when he willed. Reply, objection 2. An angel is above that time which is the measure of the movement of the heavens, because he is above every movement of a corporeal nature. Nevertheless, he is not above time which is the measure of the succession of his existence after his non-existence, and which is also the measure of the succession which is in his operations. Hence, Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 8, 20, 21, that God moves the spiritual creature according to time. Reply Objection 3. Angels and intelligent souls are corruptible by the very fact of their having a nature whereby they are capable of truth. But they did not possess this nature from eternity. It was bestowed upon them when God himself willed it. Consequently, it does not follow that the angels existed from eternity. Third Article 1. Question 61. Article 3. Whether the angels were created before the corporeal world? Objection 1. It would seem that the angels were created before the corporeal world. For Jerome says, in commentary on the epistle to Titus 1, 2, 6,000 years of our time have not yet elapsed, yet how shall we measure the time, how shall we count the ages in which the angels, thrones, dominations, and the other orders served God? Damascene also says, on the Orthodox faith, too, some say that the angels were begotten before all creation, as Gregory the theologian declares, he first of all devised the angelic and heavenly powers, and the devising was the making thereof. Objection 2. Further, the angelic nature stands midway between the divine and the corporeal natures, but the divine nature is from eternity, while corporeal nature is from time. Therefore, the angelic nature was produced ere time was made and after eternity. Objection 3. Further, the angelic nature is more remote from the corporeal nature than one corporeal nature is from another. But one corporeal nature was made before another, hence the six days of the production of things are set forth in the opening of Genesis. Much more, therefore, was the angelic nature made before every corporeal nature. On the contrary, it is said, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Now this would not be true if anything had been created previously. Consequently, the angels were not created before corporeal nature. I answer that there is a twofold opinion on this point to be found in the writings of the fathers. The more probable one holds that the angels were created at the same time as corporeal creatures. For the angels are part of the universe. They do not constitute a universe of themselves, but both they and corporeal natures unite in constituting one universe. This stands in evidence from the relationship of creature to creature, 
because the mutual relationship of creatures makes up the good of the universe. But no part is perfect if separate from the whole. Consequently, it is improbable that God, whose works are perfect, as it is said, Deuteronomy 32.4, should have created the angelic creature before other creatures. At the same time, the contrary is not to be deemed erroneous, especially on account of the opinion of Gregory Nazianzen, whose authority in Christian doctrine is of such weight that no one has ever raised objection to his teaching, as is also the case with the doctrine of Athanasius, as Jerome says. Reply Objection 1. Jerome is speaking according to the teaching of the Greek fathers, all of whom hold the creation of the angels to have taken place previously to that of the corporeal world. Reply Objection 2. God is not a part of, but far above the whole universe, possessing within himself the entire perfection of the universe in a more eminent way. But an angel is a part of the universe. Hence the comparison does not hold. Reply Objection 3. All corporeal creatures are one in matter, while the angels do not agree with them in matter. Consequently, the creation of the matter of the corporeal creature involves in a manner the creation of all things, but the creation of the angels does not involve creation of the universe. If the contrary view be held, then in the text of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, the words in the beginning must be interpreted in the sun, or in the beginning of time, but not in the beginning before which there was nothing, unless we say before which there was nothing of the nature of corporeal creatures. Fourth article. 1. Question 61. Article 4. Whether the angels were created in the Empyrean heaven. Objection 1. It would seem that the angels were not created in the Empyrean heaven, for the angels are incorporeal substances. Now a substance which is incorporeal is not dependent upon a body for its existence, and as a consequence neither is it for its creation. Therefore the angels were not created in any corporeal place. Objection 2. Further, Augustine remarks, the literal meaning of Genesis 3.10, that the angels were created in the upper atmosphere, therefore not in the Empyrean heaven. Objection 3. Further, the Empyrean heaven is said to be the highest heaven. If therefore the angels were created in the Empyrean heaven, it would not beseem them to mount up to a still higher heaven. And this is contrary to what is said in Isaiah, speaking in the person of the sinning angel, I will ascend into heaven, Isaiah 14.13. On the contrary, Strabus, commenting on the text, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, says, By heaven he does not mean the visible firmament, but the empyrean, that is, the fiery or intellectual firmament, which is not so styled from its heat, but from its splendor, and which was filled with angels directly it was made. I answer that, as observed, Article 3, the universe is made up of corporeal and spiritual creatures. Consequently, spiritual creatures were so created as to bear some relationship to the corporeal creature and to rule over every corporeal creature. Hence it was fitting for the angels to be created in the highest corporeal place as presiding over all corporeal nature, whether it be styled the Empyrean heaven or whatever else it be called. So Isidore says that the highest heaven is the heaven of the angels, explaining the passage of Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, heaven is the Lord's thy God, and the heaven of heaven. 
Reply Objection 1. The angels were created in a corporeal place, not as if depending upon a body either as to their existence or as to their being made, because God could have created them before all corporeal creation, as many holy doctors hold. They were made in a corporeal place in order to show their relationship to corporeal nature and that they are, by their power, in touch with bodies. Reply Objection 2. By the uppermost atmosphere, Augustine possibly means the highest part of heaven, to which the atmosphere has a kind of affinity owing to its subtlety and transparency. Or else he is not speaking of all the angels, but only of such as sinned, who, in the opinion of some, belonged to the inferior orders. But there is nothing to hinder us from saying that the higher angels, as having an exalted and universal power over all corporeal things, were created in the highest place of the corporeal creature, while the other angels, as having more restricted powers, were created among the inferior bodies. Reply Objection 3. Isaiah is not speaking there of any corporeal heaven, but of the heaven of the blessed Trinity, unto which the sinning angel wished to ascend, when he desired to be equal in some manner to God, as will appear later on. Question 63, Article 3. End of question 61. Question 62 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the angels and on the six days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 62. Of the Perfection of the Angels in the Order of Grace and Glory, in Nine Articles. In due sequence, we have to inquire how the angels were made in the order of grace and glory, under which heading there are nine points of inquiry. 1. Were the angels created in beatitude? 2. Did they need grace in order to turn to God? 3. Were they created in grace? 4. Did they merit their beatitude? 5. Did they at once enter into beatitude after merit? 6. Did they receive grace and glory according to their natural capacities? 7. After entering glory, did their natural love and knowledge remain? 8. Could they have sinned afterwards? 9. After entering into glory, could they advance farther? First Article 1. Question 62. Article 1. Whether the angels were created in beatitude? Objection 1. It would seem that the angels were created in beatitude, for it is stated, on the Articles of the Church 29, that the angels who continue in the beatitude wherein they were created do not of their nature possess the excellence they have. Therefore the angels were created in beatitude. Objection 2. Further, the angelic nature is nobler than the corporeal creature. But the corporeal creature straightway from its creation was made perfect and complete, nor did its lack of form take precedence in time, but only in nature, as Augustine says. The literal meaning of Genesis 1.15. Therefore, neither did God create the angelic nature imperfect and incomplete, but its formation and perfection are derived from its beatitude, whereby it enjoys God. Therefore, it was created in beatitude. Objection 3. Further, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 4.34.5.5, 5, 
The things which we read of as being made in the works of the six days were made together at one time, and so all the six days must have existed instantly from the beginning of creation. But according to his exposition, in those six days, the morning was the angelic knowledge according to which they knew the word and things in the word. Therefore straightway from their creation they knew the word and things in the word. But the bliss of the angels comes of seeing the word. Consequently the angels were in beatitude straightway from the very beginning of their creation. On the contrary, to be established or confirmed in good is the nature of the beatitude. But the angels were not confirmed in good as soon as they were created. The fall of some of them shows this. Therefore the angels were not in beatitude from their creation. I answer that, by the name of beatitude is understood the ultimate perfection of rational or of intellectual nature, and hence it is that it is naturally desired, since everything naturally desires its ultimate perfection. Now there is a twofold ultimate perfection of rational or of intellectual nature. The first is one which it can procure of its own natural power, and this is in a measure called beatitude or happiness. Hence Aristotle, Ethics 10, says that man's ultimate happiness consists in his most perfect contemplation, whereby in this life he can behold the best intelligible object, and that is God. Above this happiness, there is still another, which we look forward to in the future, whereby we shall see God as he is. This is beyond the very nature of every created intellect, as was shown above. Question 12, Article 4. So then, it remains to be said that, as regards this first beatitude, which the angel could procure by his natural power, he was created already blessed. Because the angel does not acquire such beatitude by any progressive action, as man does, but, as was observed above, question 58, articles 3 and 4, is straightway in possession thereof, owing to his natural dignity. But the angels did not have, from the beginning of their creation, that ultimate beatitude, which is beyond the power of nature, because such beatitude is no part of their nature, but its end, and consequently they ought not to have it immediately from the beginning. Reply Objection 1. Beatitude is there taken for that natural perfection which the angel had in the state of innocence. Reply Objection 2. The corporeal creature instantly, in the beginning of its creation, could not have the perfection to which it is brought by its operation, Consequently, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 5, 4, 23, 8, 3, the growing of plants from the earth did not take place at once among the first works, in which only the germinating power of the plants was bestowed upon the earth. In the same way, the angelic creature, in the beginning of its existence, had the perfection of its nature, but it did not have the perfection to which it had to come by its operation. Reply Objection 3. The angel has a twofold knowledge of the word, the one which is natural, and the other according to glory. He has a natural knowledge whereby he knows the word through a similitude thereof shining in his nature, and he has a knowledge of glory whereby he knows the word through his essence. By both kinds of knowledge the angel knows things in the word, imperfectly by his natural knowledge, and perfectly by knowledge of glory. Therefore, the first knowledge of things in the word was present to the angel from the outset of his creation, while the second was not, but only when the angels became blessed by turning to the good. And this is properly termed their morning knowledge. Second article. 1. Question 62. Article 2. Whether an angel needs grace in order to turn to God. Objection 1. It would seem that the angel had no need of grace in order to turn to God. 
for we have no need of grace for what we can accomplish naturally. But the angel naturally turns to God, because he loves God naturally, as is clear from what has been said. Question 60, Article 5. Therefore an angel did not need grace in order to turn to God. Objection 2. Further, seemingly, we need help only for difficult tasks. Now it was not a difficult task for the angel to turn to God, because there was no obstacle in him to such turning. Therefore the angel had no need of grace in order to turn to God. Objection 3. Further, to turn oneself to God is to dispose oneself for grace. Hence it is said, Zechariah 1.3, Turn ye to me, and I will turn to you. But we do not stand in need of grace in order to prepare ourselves for grace, for thus we should go on to infinity. Therefore the angel did not need grace to turn to God. On the contrary, it was by turning to God that the angel reached to beatitude. If then he had needed no grace in order to turn to God, it would follow that he did not require grace in order to possess everlasting life. But this is contrary to the saying of the Apostle, Romans 6.23, The grace of God is life everlasting. I answer that the angels stood in need of grace in order to turn to God as the object of beatitude. For, as was observed above, question 60, article 2, the natural movement of the will is the principle of all things that we will. But the will's natural inclination is directed towards what is in keeping with its nature. Therefore, if there is anything which is above nature, the will cannot be inclined towards it, unless helped by some other supernatural principle. Thus, it is clear that fire has a natural tendency to give forth heat, and to generate fire, whereas to generate flesh is beyond the natural power of fire. Consequently, fire has no tendency thereto, except insofar as it is moved instrumentally by the nutritive soul. Now it was shown above, question 12, articles 4 and 5, when we were treating of God's knowledge, that to see God in his essence, wherein the ultimate beatitude of the rational creature consists, is beyond the nature of every created intellect. Consequently, no rational creature can have the movement of the will directed towards such beatitude, except it be moved thereto by a supernatural agent. This is what we call the help of grace. Therefore it must be said that an angel could not, of his own will, be turned to such beatitude, except by the help of grace. Reply Objection 1. The angel loves God naturally, so far as God is the author of his natural being. But here we are speaking of turning to God, so far as God bestows beatitude by the vision of his essence. Reply Objection 2. A thing is difficult which is beyond a power, and this happens in two ways. First of all, because it is beyond the natural capacity of the power. Thus, if it can be attained by some help, it is said to be difficult, but if it can in no way be attained, then it is impossible. Thus, it is impossible for a man to fly. In another way, a thing may be beyond the power, not according to the natural order of such power, but owing to some intervening hindrance, as to mount upwards is not contrary to the natural order of the motive power of the soul, because the soul, considered in itself, can be moved in any direction, but is hindered from so doing by the weight of the body. Consequently, it is difficult for a man to mount upwards. To be turned to his ultimate beatitude is difficult for man, both because it is beyond his nature, and because he has a hindrance from the corruption of the body and infection of sin. But it is difficult for an angel only because it is supernatural. Reply Objection 3. Every movement of the will towards God can be termed a conversion to God. 
and so there is a threefold turning to God. The first is by the perfect love of God. This belongs to the creature enjoying the possession of God, and for such conversion, consummate grace is required. The next turning to God is that which merits beatitude, and for this there is a required habitual grace, which is the principle of merit. The third conversion is that whereby a man disposes himself so that he may have grace. For this no habitual grace is required, but the operation of God, who draws the soul towards himself, according to Lamentations 5.21, Convert us, O Lord, to thee, and we shall be converted. Hence it is clear that there is no need to go on to infinity. Third Article 1. Question 62. Article 3. Whether the angels were created in grace? Objection 1. It would seem that the angels were not created in grace. For Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 8, that the angelic nature was first made without form and was called heaven, but afterwards it received its form and was then called light. But such formation comes from grace, therefore they were not created in grace. Objection 2. Further, grace turns the rational creature toward God. If therefore the angel had been created in grace, no angel would ever have turned away from God. Objection 3. Further, grace comes midway between nature and glory. But the angels were not beatified in their creation. Therefore it seems that they were not created in grace, but that they were first created in nature only, and then received grace, and that last of all they were beatified. On the contrary, Augustine says, the City of God 12, 9, Who wrought the good will of the angels? Who save him who created them with his will, that is, with the pure love wherewith they cling to him, at the same time building up their nature and bestowing grace on them? I answer that, although there are conflicting opinions on this point, some holding that the angels were created only in a natural state, while others maintain that they were created in grace, yet it seems more probable and more in keeping with the sayings of holy men that they were created in sanctifying grace. For we see that all things which, in the process of time, being created by the work of divine providence, were produced by the operation of God, were created in the first fashioning of things according to seed-like forms, as Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 8, 3, such as trees, animals, and the rest. Now it is evident that sanctifying grace bears the same relation to beatitude as the seed-like form in nature does to the natural effect, hence, 1 John 3, 9, grace is called the seed of God. As then, in Augustine's opinion, it is contended that the seed-like forms of all natural effects were implanted in the creature when corporeally created, so straightway from the beginning the angels were created in grace. Reply Objection 1. Such absence of form in the angels can be understood either by comparison with their formation in glory, and so the absence of formation preceded formation by priority of time, or else it can be understood of the formation according to grace, and so it did not proceed in the order of time but in the order of nature, as Augustine holds with regard to the formation of corporeal things the literal meaning of Genesis 1.15. Reply Objection 2. Every form inclines the subject after the mode of the subject's heart. Now it is the mode of an intellectual nature to be inclined freely towards the object it desires. Consequently, the movement of grace does not impose necessity, but he who has grace can fail to make use of it and can sin. Reply Objection 3. Although in the order of nature grace comes midway between nature and glory, Nevertheless, in the order of time, in created nature, glory is not simultaneous with nature, 
because glory is the end of the operation of nature helped by grace. But grace stands not as the end of operation, because it is not of works, but as the principle of right operation. Therefore it was fitting for grace to be given straightway with nature. Fourth Article 1. Question 62. Article 4. Whether an angel merits his beatitude? Objection 1. It would seem that the angel did not merit his beatitude. For merit arises from the difficulty of the meritorious act. But the angel experienced no difficulty in acting rightly. Therefore righteous action was not meritorious for him. Objection 2. Further, we do not merit by merely natural operations. But it was quite natural for the angel to turn to God. Therefore, he did not thereby merit beatitude. Objection 3. Further, if a beatified angel merited his beatitude, he did so either before he had it or else afterwards. But it was not before, because in the opinion of many, he had no grace before whereby to merit it. Nor did he merit it afterwards, because thus he would be meriting it now, which is clearly false, because in that case a lower angel could, by meriting, rise up to the rank of a higher, and the distinct degrees of grace would not be permanent, which is not admissible. Consequently, the angel did not merit his beatitude. On the contrary, it is stated, Revelation 21:17, that the measure of the angel in that heavenly Jerusalem is the measure of a man. Therefore, the same is the case with the angel. I answer that, perfect beatitude is natural only to God, because existence and beatitude are one and the same thing in him. Beatitude, however, is not of the nature of the creature, but is its end. Now everything attains its last end by its operation. Such operation leading to the end is either productive of the end, when such end is not beyond the power of the agent working for the end, as the healing art is productive of health, or else it is deserving of the end, when such end is beyond the capacity of the agent striving to attain it, wherefore it is looked for from another's bestowing. Now it is evident from what has gone before, Articles 1 and 2, Question 12, Articles 4 and 5, Ultimate beatitude exceeds both the angelic and the human nature. It remains then that both man and angel merited their beatitude. And if the angel was created in grace, without which there is no merit, there would be no difficulty in saying that he merited beatitude, as also if one were to say that he had grace in any way before he had glory. But if he had no grace before entering upon beatitude, it would then have to be said that he had beatitude without merit, even as we have grace. This, however, is quite foreign to the idea of beatitude, which conveys the notion of an end, and is the reward of virtue, even as the philosopher says, Ethics 1, 9, or else it will have to be said, as some others have maintained, that the angels merit beatitude by their present ministrations, while in beatitude. This is quite contrary, again, to the notion of merit, since merit conveys the idea of a means to an end, while what is already in its end cannot, properly speaking, be moved towards such end, and so no one merits to produce what he already enjoys, or else he will have it to be said that one and the same act of turning to God, so far as it comes of free will, is meritorious, and so far as it attains the end, is the fruition of beatitude. Even this view will not stand, because free will is not the sufficient cause of merit, and consequently an act cannot be meritorious as coming from free will, except in so far as it is informed by grace, 
but it cannot at the same time be informed by imperfect grace, which is the principle of meriting, and by perfect grace, which is the principle of enjoying. Hence it does not appear to be possible for any one to enjoy beatitude, and at the same time to merit it. Consequently it is better to say that the angel had grace ere he was admitted to beatitude, and that by such grace he merited beatitude. Reply Objection 1. The angel's difficulty of working righteously does not come from any contrariety or hindrance of natural powers, but from the fact that the good work is beyond his natural capacity. Reply Objection 2. An angel did not merit beatitude by natural movement towards God, but by the movement of charity which comes of grace. The answer to the third objection is evident from what we have said. Fifth Article 1. Question 62. Article 5. Whether the angel obtained beatitude immediately after one act of merit? Objection 1. It would seem that the angel did not possess beatitude instantly after one act of merit, for it is more difficult for a man to do well than for an angel. But man is not rewarded at once after one act of merit, therefore neither was the angel. Objection 2. Further, an angel could act at once, and in an instant, from the very outset of his creation, for even natural bodies begin to be moved in the very instant of their creation, and if the movement of a body could be instantaneous, like operations of mind and will, it would have movement in the first instant of its generation. Consequently, if the angel merited beatitude by one act of his will, he merited it in the first instant of his creation, and so, if their beatitude was not retarded, then the angels were in beatitude in the first instant. Objection 3. Further, there must be many intervals between things which are far apart, but the beatific state of the angels is very far remote from their natural condition, while merit comes midway between. Therefore the angel would have to pass through many stages of merit in order to reach beatitude. On the contrary, man's soul and an angel are ordained alike for beatitude. Consequently, equality with angels is promised to the saints. Now the soul, separated from the body, if it has merit-deserving beatitude, enters at once into beatitude, unless there be some obstacle. Therefore, so does an angel. Now an angel instantly, in his first act of charity, had the merit of beatitude. Therefore, since there was no obstacle within him, he passed at once into beatitude by only one meritorious act. I answer that, the angel was beatified instantly after the first act of charity, whereby he merited beatitude. The reason whereof is because grace perfects nature according to the manner of the nature, as every perfection is received in the subject capable of perfection according to its mode. Now it is proper to the angelic nature to receive its natural perfection not by passing from one stage to another, but to have it at once naturally, as was shown above, Article 1, Question 58, Articles 3 and 4. But as the angel is of his nature inclined to natural perfection, so is he by merit inclined to glory. Hence, instantly after merit, the angel secured beatitude. Now the merit of beatitude, in angel and man alike, can be from merely one act, because man merits beatitude by every act informed by charity. Hence, it remains that an angel was beatified straightway after one act of charity. Reply Objection 1. Man was not intended to secure his ultimate perfection at once, like the angel. Hence, a longer way was assigned to the man than to the angel for securing beatitude. Reply Objection 2. The angel is above the time of corporeal things, hence the various instants regarding the angels are not to be taken except as reckoning the succession of their acts. 
Now their act which merited beatitude could not be in them simultaneously with the act of beatitude, which is fruition, since the one belongs to imperfect grace and the other to consummate grace. Consequently, it remains for different instants to be conceived, in one of which the angel merited beatitude, and in another was beatified. Reply Objection 3. It is of the nature of an angel instantly to attain the perfection unto which he is ordained. Consequently, only one meritorious act is required, which act can so far be called an interval, as through it the angel is brought to beatitude. Sixth Article. 1. Question 62. Article 6. Whether the angels receive grace and glory according to the degree of their natural gifts? Objection 1. It would seem that the angels did not receive grace and glory according to the degree of their natural gifts. For grace is bestowed of God's absolute will. Therefore, the degree of grace depends on God's will and not on the degree of their natural gifts. Objection 2. Further, a moral act seems to be more closely allied with grace than nature is, because a moral act is preparatory to grace. But grace does not come of works, as is said Romans 11.6. Therefore, much less does the degree of grace depend upon the degree of their natural gifts. Objection 3. Further, man and angel are alike ordained for beatitude or grace. But man does not receive more grace according to the degree of his natural gifts. Therefore, neither does the angel. On the contrary, is the saying of the master of the sentences, sentences 2d3, that those angels who were created with more subtle natures and of keener intelligence and wisdom were likewise endowed with greater gifts of grace. I answer that it is reasonable to suppose that gifts of graces and perfection of beatitude were bestowed on the angels according to the degree of their natural gifts. The reason for this can be drawn from two sources. First of all, on the part of God, who, in the order of his wisdom, established various degrees in the angelic nature. Now, as the angelic nature was made by God for attaining grace and beatitude, so likewise the grades of the angelic nature seem to be ordained for the various degrees of grace and glory. Just as when, for example, the builder chisels the stones for building a house, from the fact that he prepares some more artistically and more fittingly than others, it is clear that he is setting them apart for the more ornate part of the house. So it seems that God destined those angels for greater gifts of grace and fuller beatitude, whom he made of a higher nature. Secondly, the same is evident on the part of the angel. The angel is not a compound of different natures, so that the inclination of the one thwarts or retards the tendency of the other, as happens in man, in whom the movement of his intellective part is either retarded or thwarted by the inclination of his sensitive part. But when there is nothing to retard or thwart it, nature is moved with its whole energy. So it is reasonable to suppose that the angels who had a higher nature were turned to God more mightily and efficaciously. The same thing happens in men, since greater grace and glory are bestowed according to the greater earnestness of their turning to God. Hence it appears that the angels who had the greater natural powers had the more grace and glory. Reply Objection 1. As grace comes of God's will alone, so likewise does the nature of the angel. And as God's will ordained nature for grace, so did it ordain the various degrees of nature to the various degrees of grace. Reply Objection 2. The acts of the rational creature are from the creature itself, whereas nature is immediately from God. Accordingly, it seems rather that grace is bestowed according to the degree of nature than according to works. Reply Objection 3. Diversity of natural gifts is, in one way, in the angels, 
who are themselves different specifically, and in quite another way in men who differ only numerically. For specific difference is on account of the end, while numerical difference is because of the matter. Furthermore, there is something in man which can thwart or impede the movement of his intellective nature, but not in the angels. Consequently, the argument is not the same for both. Seventh Article 1. Question 62. Article 7. Whether natural knowledge and love remain in the beatified angels? Objection 1. It would seem that natural knowledge and love do not remain in the beatified angels, for it is said, 1 Corinthians 13.10, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. But natural love and knowledge are imperfect in comparison with beatified knowledge and love. Therefore, in beatitude, natural knowledge and love cease. Objection 2. Further, where one suffices, another is superfluous. But the knowledge and love of glory suffice for the beatified angels. Therefore, it would be superfluous for their natural knowledge and love to remain. Objection 3. Further, the same faculty has not two simultaneous acts, as the same line cannot, at the same end, be terminated in two points. But the beatified angels are always exercising their beatified knowledge and love, for, as it is said, Ethics 1.8, happiness consists not in habit, but in act. Therefore, there can never be natural knowledge and love in the angels. On the contrary, so long as the nature endures, its operation remains. But beatitude does not destroy nature, since it is its perfection. Therefore, it does not take away natural knowledge and love. I answer that, natural knowledge and love remain in the angels. For as principles of operations are mutually related, so are the operations themselves. Now it is manifest that nature is to beatitude as first to second, because beatitude is superadded to nature. But the first must ever be preserved in the second. Consequently, nature must be preserved in, in beatitude, and in like manner the act of nature must be preserved in the act of beatitude. Reply Objection 1. The advent of a perfection removes the opposite imperfection. Now the imperfection of nature is not opposed to the perfection of beatitude, but underlies it, as the imperfection of the power underlies the perfection of the form, and the power is not taken away by the form, but the privation which is opposed to the form. In the same way, the imperfection of natural knowledge is not opposed to the perfection of the knowledge and glory, for nothing hinders us from knowing a thing through various mediums, as a thing may be known at the one time through a probable medium and through a demonstrative one. In like manner, an angel can know God by his essence, and this appertains to his knowledge of glory, and at the same time he can know God by his own essence, which belongs to his natural knowledge. Reply Objection 2. All things which make up beatitude are sufficient of themselves, but in order for them to exist, they presuppose the natural gifts, because no beatitude is self-subsisting, except the uncreated beatitude. Reply Objection 3. There cannot be two operations of the one faculty at the one time, except the one be ordained to the other. But natural knowledge and love are ordained to the knowledge and love of glory. Accordingly, there is nothing to hinder natural knowledge and love from existing in the angel conjointly with those of glory. Eighth Article 1. Question 62. Article 8. Whether a beatified angel can sin? Objection 1. It would seem that a beatified angel can sin. For, as was said above, Article 7, beatitude does not do away with nature, but it is of the very notion of created nature that it can fail. Therefore, a beatified angel can sin. Objection 2. 
Further, the rational powers are referred to opposites, as the philosopher observes. Metaphysics 4, text 3. But the will of the angel in beatitude does not cease to be rational. Therefore, it is inclined towards good and evil. Objection 3. Further, it belongs to the liberty of free will for man to be able to choose good or evil. But the freedom of will is not lessened in the beatified angels. Therefore, they can sin. On the contrary, Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 11, that there is in the holy angels that nature which cannot sin. Therefore, the holy angels cannot sin. I answer that the beatified angels cannot sin. The reason for this is because their beatitude consists in seeing God through his essence. Now, God's essence is the very essence of goodness. Consequently, the angel beholding God is disposed towards God in the same way as anyone else not seeing God is to the common form of goodness. Now it is impossible for any man either to will or to do anything except aiming at what is good, or for him to wish to turn away from good precisely as such. Therefore the beatified angel can neither will nor act, except as aiming towards God. Now whoever wills or act in this manner cannot sin. Consequently the beatified angel cannot sin. Reply Objection 1 Created good, considered in itself, can fail. But from its perfect union with the uncreated good, such as is the union of beatitude, it is rendered unable to sin, for the reason already alleged. Reply Objection 2. The rational powers are referred to opposites in the things to which they are not inclined naturally, but as to the things whereunto they have a natural tendency, they are not referred to opposites. For the intellect cannot but assent to naturally known principles, in the same way, the will cannot help clinging to good, formally as good, because the will is naturally ordained to good as to its proper object. Consequently, the will of the angels is referred to opposites, as to doing many things or not doing them. But they have no tendency to opposites with regard to God himself, whom they see to be the very nature of goodness. But in all things their aim is towards God, whichever alternative they choose, that is not sinful. Reply Objection 3 free will in its choice of means to an end is disposed just as the intellect is to conclusions. Now it is evident that it belongs to the power of the intellect to be able to proceed to different conclusions according to given principles, but for it to proceed to some conclusion by passing out of the order of the principles comes of its own defect. Hence it belongs to the perfection of its liberty for the free will to be able to choose between opposite things, keeping the order of the end in view, but it comes of the defect of liberty for it to choose anything by turning away from the order of the end, and this is to sin. Hence there is greater liberty of will in the angels, who cannot sin, than there is in ourselves, who can sin. Ninth Article 1. Question 62. Article 3. Whether the beatified angels advance in beatitude? Objection 1. It would seem that the beatified angels can advance in beatitude. For charity is the principle of merit, but there is perfect charity in the angels. Therefore the beatified angels can merit. Now as merit increases, the reward of beatitude increases. Therefore the beatified angels can progress in beatitude. Objection 2. Further, Augustine says, on Christian teaching, 1, that God makes use of us for our own gain and for his own goodness. The same thing happens to the angels, whom he uses for spiritual ministrations, since they are all, Vulgate, are they not all? 
ministering spirits sent to minister for them who shall receive the inheritance of salvation. Hebrews 1.14 This would not be for their profit were they not to merit thereby, nor to advance to beatitude. It remains then that the beatified angels can merit and can advance in beatitude. Objection 3. Further, it argues imperfection for anyone not occupying the foremost place not to be able to advance. But the angels are not in the highest degree of beatitude. Therefore, if unable to ascend higher, it would appear that there is imperfection and defect in them, which is not admissible. On the contrary, merit and progress belong to this present condition of life. But angels are not wayfarers traveling towards beatitude, they are already in possession of beatitude. Consequently, the beatified angels can neither merit nor advance in beatitude. I answer that, in every movement, the mover's intention is centered upon one determined end to which he intends to lead the movable subject, because intention looks to the end to which infinite progress is repugnant. Now it is evident, since the rational creature cannot of its own power attain to beatitude, which consists in the vision of God, as is clear from what has gone before, question 12, article 4, that it needs to be moved by God towards its beatitude. Therefore, there must be some one determined thing to which every rational creature is directed as to its last end. Now this one determinate object cannot, in the vision of God, consist precisely in that which is seen, for the supreme truth is seen by all the blessed in various degrees. But it is on the part of the mode of vision that diverse terms are fixed beforehand by the intention of him who directs towards the end. For it is impossible that as the rational creature is led on to the vision of the supreme essence, it should be led on in the same way to the supreme mode of vision, which is comprehension, for this belongs to God only, as is evident from what was said above, question 12, article 7, question 14, article 3. But since infinite efficacy is required for comprehending God, while the creature's efficacy in beholding is only finite, and since every finite being is in infinite degrees removed from the infinite, it comes to pass that the rational creature understands God more or less clearly according to infinite degrees. And as beatitude consists in vision, so the degree of vision lies in a determinate mode of the vision. Therefore, every rational creature is so led by God to the end of its beatitude that from God's predestination it is brought even to a determinate degree of beatitude. Consequently, when that degree is once secured, it cannot pass to a higher degree. Reply Objection 1. Merit belongs to a subject which is moving towards its end. Now the rational creature is moved towards its end, not merely passively, but also by working actively. If the end is within the power of the rational creature, then its action is said to procure the end, as man acquires knowledge by reflection. But if the end be beyond its power, it is looked for from another, and then the action will be meritorious of such end. But what is already, in the ultimate term, is not said to be moved, but to have been moved. Consequently, to merit belongs to the imperfect charity of this life, whereas perfect charity does not merit but rather enjoys the reward. Even as in acquired habits, the operation preceding the habit is productive of the habit, but the operation from an acquired habit is both perfect and enjoyable. In the same way, the act of perfect charity has no quality of merit, but belongs rather to the perfection of the reward. Reply Objection 2 a thing can be termed useful in two ways. First of all, as being on the way to an end, 
and so the merit of beatitude is useful. Secondly, as the part is useful for the whole, as the wall for a house. In this way, the angelic ministerings are useful for the beatified angels, inasmuch as they are a part of their beatitude. For to pour out acquired perfection upon others is of the nature of what is perfect, considered as perfect. Reply Objection 3. Although a beatified angel is not absolutely in the highest degree of beatitude, yet in his own regard he is in the highest degree, according to divine predestination. Nevertheless, the joy of the angels can be increased with regard to the salvation of such as are saved by their ministrations, according to Luke 15.10. There is, Vulgate shall be, joy before the angels of God upon one sinner doing penance. Such joy belongs to their accidental reward, which can be increased unto judgment day. Hence some writers say that they can merit as to their accidental reward. But it is better to say that the blessed can in no wise merit without being at the same time a wayfarer and a comprehensor, like Christ, who alone was such. For the blessed acquire such joy from the virtue of their beatitude, rather than merit it. End of question 62